Hi, everyone. Welcome back to My Autism Tribe. We'll be speaking with Sean Enderbitson on today's show. He's a mental health clinician who is actually on the autism spectrum himself, and he reached out a couple of weeks ago because he wanted to share his voice. It makes me so happy when people reach out to me. It truly does because my number one goal is to make sure that everyone is able to share their voice because that's how we learn. That's how we expand and stretch ourselves and at the end of the day, accept one another regardless of our views and opinions may sometimes vary from others. So thanks so much for listening. Welcome to My Autism Tribe, an organization of advocates that are educating, supporting, and empowering those in our communities. We are one voice made stronger. I'm your host, Susan Scott. Sean was diagnosed with autism at the age of 18, and he's now a practicing behavioral health therapist. He is so passionate about helping his clients and letting others know about the importance of having counseling services available to people who have autism. He's constantly researching, constantly gaining more knowledge, and he notes that um, there was a study, 43 out of 44 clinicians are actually not comfortable in counseling patients on the spectrum. So it's pretty special that Sean has this personal experience as a way to relate and empathize with those lives he touches. And I'm so excited for you to get to know Sean more on our show today. Let's please give him a warm welcome. Hey, Sean, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for reaching out. And um, as we talked before we hopped online, um, I did a little bit of stalking you. I always say very friendly stalking to some of my guests just so I could get to know you a little better before we hop on. And you're such a great speaker and such an amazing individual um, and doing so many wonderful things. So um, thank you for your time. And like to get started off by you kind of introducing yourself and sharing with our community a little bit about yourself and uh, and then how like your diagnosis story and then what amazing sure. things that you're doing today. Sure, I'd be happy to do that. Um, so my name is Sean. Like you said, um, I love to talk. That's sort of how I stim is I tell people <laughs> my girlfriend sort of rolls her eyes at me. Um, <laughs> I have a girlfriend who will hopefully soon be my fiance um congrats well thank you i'm really looking forward to it i've got two little boys named Mm -hmm. shiloh and bohan and and they are the absolute driver of everything i do um so i I just i'm really big on them and i'm a behavioral health therapist and like um we talked about i have a diagnosis of autism so um so how did that come to to fruition so when I was 18, I had a pretty serious car wreck. Um, and I, at the time, I'd only been diagnosed with ADHD, which I think was a misdiagnosis, but we can talk more about that later. Yeah. Um, but I, I left the scene of this car accident and I decided to call back like an hour later because I didn't know if I made the right decision or not. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you think about that, like normally no one has to teach someone like, hey, you're in a car wreck to stay at the scene of the accident. Yeah. So I think that kind of triggered my parents to go looking medically. Like maybe it was their desire to protect me, but I, I tend to think like that that is a big red flag for not getting nonverbal social cues up until then. I'd always been different and a little weird, but 
that kind of pieced it all together. I got a diagnosis of Asperger's at 18 using the ADOS. Um, and so, so yeah, that's kind of how okay. I, I got my diagnosis. Okay. And so what was that, what was your course like, you know, right now you're sitting as a behavioral health clinician. And so was that the start of just doing research and having that passion to just gain more knowledge and that led you to where you are today? You know, I wish it were that clear cut. It's honestly a <laughs> it lot. It never less is exciting. really. <laughs> um, so I went. I I went through high school senior year. Like, okay, I have autism. I worked with a therapist to kind of build some social skills to get to go to prom. Like that was my big goal. That's <laughs> awesome. To ask somebody to prom, and I did. And we went as friends, and it was a really good time. And um, then I went off to college, or I went to a summer camp. I lived on my own. Um, then I went to a university named Cairn and it was there that I kind of got, um, linked into social work after I read a book called, um, the irresistible revolution, which is this guy's account of it's, it's an account of Shane Claiborne's interaction with poverty in Philadelphia. And so that got me thinking on the social work track. And honestly, I thought I was going to be a researcher, but then I got married and ended up in Wisconsin, had two kids. And then only after that did my master's. And I thought I was going to be a policy analyst of all things. But after talking with my old boss, Karen, about like, what does it policy analysts do? Um, I interviewed some policy analysts about what they do. Um, as part of sort of my grad school process, I realized that most of the jobs um, we're in Madison or Minneapolis and I'm about two hours from Minneapolis and four from Madison. Okay. And at the time I, and I still do have my voice 50% of the time. So that would have been really difficult to coordinate, like being sure. their parents and doing these jobs. So it kind of won out. Like I even got offered a policy analyst job at one point, but, um, it just, the tasks, it's very much sitting in meetings and writing and a lot of detail and, I'm just all about talking to people. I'm kind of happy-go-lucky yeah. if you trust yourself from my videos. So it really wasn't a good match. So I just I used my degree to be a social worker after I graduated. Um, I had a really wonderful time at VR. And leaving there was kind of sad, but it was the right move because I needed to expand my horizons. So, um, so yeah, after I'd been a case manager for kind of this four or five years, I worked at this nursing home for three months. And I was just like, this is not for me. I need to do something where I'm home at night or I'm not sure. taking stress home where I'm not doing tons of paperwork and feeling like I'm missing things. And so that's when I applied to be a mental health therapist. And uh -huh. um, it was kind of in that time frame that I realized, Oh, I want to work with people with autism. I have autism. these things kind of work together. And so <laughs> yeah. that's how I kind of how I got to wanting to work with people with autism was, um, I, about a year and two months ago, I started at a clinic, and that's kind of what I started with my focus as, was sort of developmental disabilities, and and that's not the only population I work with, but um, autism is just a population that's near and dear to me to do mental health work with. And what a great combination. I feel like one of the things that a lot of times is lacking or very rare to find is that any... <sighs> health professional that we go and see 
it's not that they don't have that connection with us, but when we do find that they have personal experience with us, that they're able to empathize with us, they know kind of what we're going through. It just, the whole, it's like the whole world opens up. You, you're able to have a completely different conversation many times with that person because they just get it. And so to have you, uh, with your personal experience, be able to work with patients or clients or, you know, that, that are on this spectrum is just, I think, huge. Well, thanks. I, I think so too. Um, part of what I think makes me unique in not only the, um, the work I do is that the strategies I use mm. are very rooted in what's called motivational interviewing. Um, and so I'm kind of going to walk us through kind of what that is I would and love where that. it comes from. Um, so according to Miller and Rolnick, so it was created by these two psychologists to work in the field of addictions, um, Will Miller and Stephen Rolnick. Um, and I get to meet Will Miller this fall, so I'm pretty excited. Oh, awesome. Um, yeah, so MI is a collaborative, goal-oriented style of communication with particular attention to the language of change. It is designed to strengthen personal motivation for and commitment to a specific goal by eliciting and exploring a person's own reasons for change within an atmosphere of acceptance and compassion. So okay. motivational interviewing's history is that it was used in substance abuse counseling and sort of arose out of this need of like the confronting people and trying to get them to tra- change really didn't work. So mm-hmm. MI sort of was this evolution um, in the field of substance abuse where it was very much, how do we partner with the person to make the change they want to make? Because a lot of times substance abuse patients would come in knowing like, Hey, if I don't turn this around, I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to lose my family. Like right. there was good motivation, but guilting them into doing it wasn't very effective. And what we found True. from MI research is that this is a really effective strategy of partnership. And so it's been sort of globalized to a lot of fields from health psychology and working with diabetes patients to um, educational settings with programs like Espert um, and even Voc Rehab. And that's kind of how I got exposed to it because I worked in Voc Rehab and so I got some training in it. And I've kept getting training in it to the point where now I'm, I'm becoming a trainer this fall. Um, so I'm a member of the Motivational Interviewing Network of Trainers incoming class of 2020. So I'm really excited about that. Awesome. But I use it with people with autism because I think people with autism want to be partnered with. Um, there was a research study. And, and so I just want to preface with I don't think all ABA is bad. But I think there is some risk with ABA as there is with psychotherapy and other forms of therapy for people with autism. Mm -hmm. Um, There is this study, and there's only one study that I'm aware of, so I don't know how reliable the results are over time. But this was the second one, actually. So I guess there wasn't one. There was two. Um, But this Dr. Kupferstein did this article. Um, She does alternative communication type therapies. So she does music therapy. And sort of compared why do people leave different forms of therapy and mm-hmm. examined how, how often do people form or have post-traumatic stress syndrome. And so she surveyed something like 500 people. And of the people who received ABA, 42% of them exhibited signs of post-traumatic stress syndrome. Mm-hmm. Now, just to be, clarify, post-traumatic stress syndrome is what you experience in the first 30 days 
after you witness a traumatic event. After day 31, it becomes PTSD. And so not necessarily that people have PTSD after being in ABA, but people have PTSS. Um, gotcha. 37% of participants in the same study who had had psychotherapy um, exhibited symptoms of PTSS. But I think that 5% difference is accounted for by how person-centered the therapy is. And that's why I think MI is such a good and beautiful sort of approach to working with people with autism, because it's, it's about how person-centered that approach is. Like, even if I'm doing psychotherapy, say with a seven-year-old with autism, um, depending on where their verbal skill is, I may have to involve the parent, but I'm always going to be leaning into what are their desires. Whereas I don't know that that's going to happen across other therapies. Yeah. That's so, so, wow. So can you, um, this is, this is really fascinating, uh, because before you, I had never really heard of motivational interviewing. Now, mm-hmm. um, Alex, my son, um, who's getting okay. ready to turn seven, he did participate in ABA therapy, uh, for two yeah. years and, um, and it was intensive ABA therapy. It's something mm-hmm. that I felt like clicked for him. He showed sure. rapid progress, uh, right. almost right out of the gate. Um, but, um, but I'm fascinated with this motivational interviewing because even though he has quote unquote graduated from his program, um, sure. and is no longer participating in it, I do feel like there are different types of therapies that we will for a while have to engage in just to keep the progress being made and, you know, just being able to help him through different milestones. Can you walk us through the motivational interview process or how that might work? So we kind of think about a bell curve. So like think about a curve, like a mountain in your mind. So like on Mm -hmm. that first part, um, and so MI is really kind of targeted around specific behaviors that are, there's a change. So if, say, Alex, like, say, Alex, I'm trying to think of a good behavior. Say you wanted him to eat different foods. Say he only ate pizza. That would, really this is a great, try. this is a great example, by the way. That would be great. Great. I may great. implement just... this afterwards. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I wanted that re-emphasize that MI is a skill like anything else and there's lots of good trainers out there um, and there's not necessarily a lot of research base on does MI work with people with autism so I just want to preface with that but there is a lot of research to say it works with school-aged children on behaviors like um, like the transition from kindergarten there's research out on how to reduce problem behaviors and how to make that transition easier um, there's research on adolescents and primary age students on making effective changes in the classroom. Um, so there is some research out there that control doesn't control for neurodiversity. Um, mm-hmm. and that's why I think it's an important area of study, but back to MI. So let's say he wants to just eat pizza, but he's, so we kind of look at where his talk is in sort of three three areas. So like there's the area where a person is really resistant to change and they're like, I am not doing this. There is nothing you can say to make me do this. I will not eat anything but pizza. Mm-hmm. Is my, that is, is kind of like the language you might hear in a, a section sure. like that in sort of that resistant stage. Um, and so 
<clears throat> then there's this ambivalence stage, which is very much like, I want to eat pizza, but I really kind of want to try peaches. Like peaches might be good, but I, I'm, I'm really like, I know how pizza is going to work. I know how it's going to taste. I know how at the end of the day, it's going to sit in my stomach. Like I'm not going to have any problems if I eat pizza. And then yeah. there's readiness for change, which is, I think I'm going to try a peach today. I think that's going to be where I go. Sure. And so like sort of the process is very much like it's, it's sort of fourfold. We work on engaging. So we work on sort of roping people in. So if they're resistant, it's very much like, okay, so why don't you want to eat anything but pizza? Because it starts making them list the reasons. Um, and then you mm -hmm. kind of move from those reasons into focus. So we're trying to move from like, what is this resistance to? Because let's say Alex is sitting in front of me and I've never met Alex. And then I like, and you just tell me I want him to eat more foods, but he's like, I just want to eat pizza. And mom's like, got this beef with me and pizza. Like it might be this sort of like, okay, so what's your goal? Because remember how I said, when I talked about substance abuse counseling, like substance abuse counseling was very like, we're going to make you change your, or you're relapsing. And it was very like heavy handed. Um, and so that didn't work for a lot of people. So when I think about someone like Alex, I think about someone who's going to ruminate about pizza, but those ruminations are really helpful because you kind of get sucked in. There's, I consider them ports of entry. Like they really are opportunities to sort of engage. Like, can you change the topic on the pizza? And maybe it's like we have to, maybe his goal to meet your goal might be, I want to change the toppings on my pizza and put peaches on the top of the pizza or pineapple or whatever. Um, yeah. So then we kind of move to this focusing, okay, like what is the goal? So let's say the goal is to change pop topics or toppings for pizza, but he's got a lot of feelings of ambivalence about this. Like he's very like, I'm not sure I can change. I, things are going to go ballistic if I don't eat pizza with pepperoni on it but I really want to try peaches. So you start, like I was saying earlier, you start to hear that sort of, okay, there's this discrepancy. And so what we try to do is we try to engage those um, change talk statements and minimize those sustained talk statements. So it, he might say something. So if we were doing this scenario, what's something he might say if he were ambivalent about it? Well, it would be uh, maybe I will... I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to think. Maybe I'll lick the pizza, and but okay. I'm not going to maybe bite it. So that I might respond with a reflective statement like, so you're not going to bite the pizza, but you're willing to lick it. And, and what we did there was we moved, we, we, we acknowledged the sustain talk, but we moved it at the end to the change talk. Because what we want to do is keep fostering that change talk because it might be, I'll lick the toppings okay, what toppings might you lick? And then we kind of go down the road and then we begin to plan. We get to move into this phase of planning like, okay, we'll try two, for two nights from now to next session, we're going to try pizza with, you're going to lick, you're going to lick two pieces of pizza with, with peaches on it and walnuts. Not that you put walnuts on pizza, but you get the idea. Like yeah. whatever the food is, but like, I think that's a really effective tool to work with somebody with autism because it's very person centered and yet it still gets them to move through that change cycle. Um, yeah. 
So you work, I'm assuming, and depending on the age too and the level of communication, Mm -hmm. like you said, you work with parents a lot to, um, I guess, follow through with the therapy because the licking of the pizza is going to be at home. So uh, that will have to be driven by the parents or the caregivers in that situation. Um, And then like, is this something that's done on like a weekly basis or how often do you have these sessions? So, I mean, I think it really depends on the individual and their goals. So, I mean, it might take a few sessions before we even get to like, I'm willing to lick the pizza. Like, Like it could take a lot of times, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Goodwill Hunting, but yeah, kind of what I think is so characteristic about that movie about people with autism is sometimes there's a lot of resistance to making any change. Sure. But once they make that change, it is globalized to a whole bunch of places. And there is all this. So it might take four or five sessions. Um, hopefully it's faster, but sometimes it's not. Um, where I'm just working with this kid to work towards that goal that they've got all this resistance to. And it's the kids, like, it's got to be the kid's goal at some level too. Like, the kid's got to want to make mom and dad happy. I think that has to be – sorry, go ahead. Yeah. No, all of this stuff is, like, completely making sense, and I I keep wanting to acknowledge it. Sorry if I keep interrupting because so so many of these things are just kind of, like, clicking, you know, like aha moments. and. It's um and so that's a beautiful thing. One one thing I've noticed with with Alex is that so much of his maybe lack or resistance to trying things is fear of failure. And this isn't something necessarily that he's verbally communicated to me, but sure. I do know that he's very hard on himself and sure. that um and that he is a people pleaser. And so if he feels sure. like he may not be able to follow through, he doesn't want to have that letdown. And so right. and um, that's part of the yeah. part of working with the ambiguity, I think, is like what is that thing that he really wants to try? Because I think like there are those self-esteem issues mm-hmm. that arise with people with autism, at least in some of the kids I've worked with. Um, I generally work with older kids. I've worked with some younger kids and there's some really good manualized approaches. Not necessarily that are MI that work for that sort of autism and anxiety piece um, mm-hmm. or that fear. But I think about those beliefs. Like the cool thing about MI is it would, with somebody like Alex, it would get it like, okay, what is it you want to make a change? And maybe his change is really small and it's like, I want to lick the pizza, like you said. Mm-hmm. But that's a huge goal for him. And I think respecting how big a step that is for him is just such an important fundamental piece of MI. Like there's the other part of MI, which is sort of what we call the spirit of MI. Um, mm-hmm. And so the spirit of MI is really around these ideas of partnership, evocation, acceptance, and compassion. Mm. So it's it's really about accepting the person where they are partnering with them, asking challenging questions, being compassionate in the way you do it. That's what, and I think that's what separates MI from so many other therapies. Not that other therapists aren't accepting and compassionate, but um, it's just, it's really geared. It's, it's very, it's very relational. And I think one of the core deficits for people with autism often is they feel isolated, difficult for them to make connections. And so, this almost in a way models connection 
like it models like very plainly like this is how you accept this is how I accept you and it can be very challenging for someone who's never been accepted or felt acceptance it's just gosh I mean this is that's so it's so awesome because I feel like there's this misconception that some people on the autism spectrum don't want that connection or they Mm -hmm. and I Mm -hmm. feel like that is so far from the truth because they just, they may not know how or feel confident in making that engagement, but they so want it. We're all human beings. We need that. Right. Right. And that doesn't change just if you have a neurodiverse sort of label. I often joke with some of my clients that are autistic and I've had this conversation more than once with some teenagers and adults that, you know, like, how do I say this? Um, I'm just thinking here. Um, you feel deeper than most people feel. And I find, and I don't, yeah. there's no research to back this up, but it, their experience and my own experience is like little things might hit me differently than yeah. how they do other people. And so sometimes like in my own like process of like, how do I make sense of the world and become a clinician? Like it's very much, um, I find myself using my own therapists in the past have very much been like, have you thought about it this way? So I find myself doing a lot of that, a lot of like, yeah, okay, am I looking at this accurately or am I taking this too personal? But it, it, it didn't start there. Like it very much started like your son where it's like mm-hmm. the whole world just isn't a fan of me. And what do I do about this? Oh, like, that's so sad. I never want him to get to that place of, I don't know if, if the word despair is, is the right word, sure. but I, I want to make him as self-aware as, as possible, sure. you know, to like something that mm-hmm. you just mentioned is, you know, being able to get to that point where it's like, okay, I am, I'm feeling and I'm experiencing this as, in a certain way. Is this how other people are experiencing it? Or, you know, and maybe that's not always going to be able to be the case, but I want right. him to be as emotionally intelligent and self-aware as possible. And, so, you know. Can I interrupt? I'm sure. Sorry. Yeah, absolutely. No, um, no, go So ahead. there's a, so I think about meditation being a really effective sort of practice for that. Not that I did that in the past, but I do that more presently because it's all about cultivating awareness because really there's a great app called Headspace. Yes. Um, I'm very familiar. And, are you, are you familiar? Yeah. So they have some for kids though. And I think about like, Oh, I didn't know it's that. Never too yeah, no, they totally do in there. So just search through the library. But I love that you know what it is because mm-hmm. it's so immensely helpful. And yeah. I, like for my own anxiety, it has just brought it down tenfold. That's to just awesome. be aware and present in the moment. Because I think about like when I think about that combination of somebody being really anxious, I, I usually think about the saying that somebody's looking forward and they're kind of staring. And so mm. what I like about motive like not necessarily motivational interviewing for something like this but um meditation is that you can really cultivate awareness like even if like they have some basic courses in there and they may be more geared towards adults but you can do them for five minutes like and it's something you can do together but like it's it's very like listen to your breathing count your breaths hold your breaths like it's very 
Mm. It's very just concrete. And I like that about it because you can have autism and you don't have to have abstract thinking to really be able to just yeah. smell in the roses, blow out the candle. Like it just, it, it totally is something the kids can do. Um, sometimes I have my own kids do it. They're not super great at it because they're <laughs> but the, it, it takes practice, you know, well, for right, sure. Right. Yeah? But that's kind of the, the whole point is to fail mm-hmm. with uh, meditation. And that's what I find so beautiful about it. And in cultivating awareness, like I think the under, like the thing that emerges from practice of meditation is this sort of awareness that we were talking about. Like mm-hmm. you become more aware of like, okay, what do I, so like one of the meditations it'll go through, like notice the qualities of emotion in your body, notice where the tension is in your body. Those are two separate ones, but like Mm -hmm. those same skills of like noticing your emotions are really valuable. Um, There's some studies out there that talk about, I don't, are you familiar with alexithymia if I say that? Uh, No. So alexithymia is sort of this inability to read and label what you're feeling. Um, So you kind of have like no inter, it's not a clinical condition so much as a personality condition. And so one in two people, one study found that one in two people with autism has this. So when I work with somebody younger, it's usually about like, okay, what do we do to become aware of what we're feeling? Um, There's some great CBT card games um, my boss sent me one last night. I'm going to try to think of the name of it real. Let's see. It's called um, Emotion Guard. And it's it's from the people who made CBT. Um, or, okay. or playing CBT creator is who it's by. But essentially, like, it's a go fish with emotions game. But it huh. swaps a little. So there's, there's all these tools out there, though. But if we can teach awareness about emotions, I think you can kind of step into that space and... So despair doesn't become the option, but awareness becomes the option because once you can start labeling what you're feeling, you can start yeah. looking at why am I feeling what I'm feeling yep. and challenging those perceptions. And I think that's a, that's a lesson for all of us. <laughs> so <laughs> just to really dig deep and figure out what's yeah. going on, you know, there's not enough yeah. self-awareness. <laughs> No, there really isn't. I mean, we're no. a busy culture and we kind of move around a lot. And this is, yeah. these aren't skills people cultivate. No, no, they, they need people like you to help us navigate <laughs> that whole journey. And I, you laugh, but I'm being completely serious. I just think that Good. what you're doing is so fascinating. And I'm just so happy uh, to be able to speak with you and you're just a wealth of knowledge and what you're doing is, is making such an impact in so many people's lives. And, um, for that, you you know, it's just greatly appreciated. And what you shared today was awesome. And, um, you know, so I don't know if there are several YouTube videos, um, uh, where you're being interviewed. I'm going to, put those links to the YouTube videos sure. and the show notes so sure. that people cool. can, can check you out and, yeah. uh, you know, so and yeah, go ahead. Can I, uh, I was just going to say, I'm going to be offering MI classes coming October. Um, so if anybody's interested in that, I'll be offering those. Um, so if you want to put my email in the show notes too, that'd be sure. great. So I'll be teaching MI. Um, I also am going to be offering a course for UWO Claire continuing education. 
um, on treating autism and comorbid psychiatric conditions that offers sort of a coaching model. Um, so if people or clinicians or professionals or parents, whatever, um, are interested in sort of those coaching services, just reach out to that email. Um, awesome. I'm more than happy to discuss. That's so. fascinating. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'll put um, I'll put the YouTube links in there and your email. And for anyone that's wanting to reach out, and even if it's just to ask a question to Sean, yeah. you're 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 so great um, at at answering Thanks. questions in a in a very understandable way. Because I know many of the things that we talked about today are super complex subjects, but you were able to share them in a way that. I, I feel like, at least for me, I was able to wrap my head around. So, well, good. Um, I hope your audience can too. So, yeah. Well, I, everyone, the audience members that, that we have, it's just everyone's so amazing and everyone truly is wanting cool. to gain more, more knowledge in so many different areas. And, and people like yourself have so much knowledge. So, thank you again so much for your time today. And, um, and please let me, let us know what we can do to support you. Well, thanks. Feel free to reach out if anybody has any questions. The process of therapy for clinicians who work with individuals on the spectrum requires a unique subset of therapeutic skill that's not always taught in the graduate training. And while it's important to utilize all of the common micro skills, like Sean mentioned, showing empathy, active listening, open-ended questioning with the autism population, it's also important to recognize that these individuals may have an additional set of needs for the therapy room. Um, for example, they may not have the cognitive capacity to follow metaphors and analogies that are often used in therapy. So by providing uh, continuing professional development for clinicians, this will help increase the number of competent professionals in providing these appropriate services. And I'm so absolutely happy that individuals like Sean Enderbitzen are advocating for that. Thanks so much for listening and thanks so much for being a part of my autism tribe and I'll see you soon.